coming up on Magical Medical Tour with my co-host, Dr. Glenn Woolman, and special guest, Jean Campbell, an expert board-certified trainer, educator, and practitioner of psychodrama and group psychotherapy. Join us as we learn what psychodrama is, how it is different from psychotherapy, how we could adapt this for healthier, balanced lifestyle. This and more coming up next on Magical Medical Tour. This week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hi, Christina, and greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I am Dr. Glenn Woolman, and I will be your medical guide today, along with Christina, as we travel through the healthcare galaxy, exploring ways to achieve optimal health. Today we're doing episode 155, Psychodrama for Healing. We're going to be talking with Jean Campbell, a licensed clinical social worker. She's also a board-certified trainer, educator, and practitioner of psychodrama and group psychotherapy. We're going to find out a lot about this today. But before we do, Christina, how does our audience get in touch with us? Oh, thank you, Glenn. Um, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Um, and you can do that anytime. Um, a month after this show has been recorded, a year, two years is fine. We will uh, definitely make a, a response or get it over to our special guest and have them respond. Um, or... Another way is if you are listening to the show through your device as a podcast or anything else, just give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you, Glenn. Oh, you're quite welcome. So I think we have so much to talk about today, and I could spend a long time just telling all of the credentials of uh, Jean Campbell, but <laughs> let's just introduce her and let her tell us some of these things. Love Greetings, it. Jean. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great. We're happy to have you here. Uh, I know we've been trying to get you for a long time, so this is quite an honor for us. Yes, thank, thank you, you so much for joining us, Jean. Finally got you on the show. <laughs> yes, I'm excited. Thank you. Yeah, so Jean, as the medical guide, I usually like to tell our audience where we're going to go today. So basically, we're going to spend a few minutes uh, looking at your path. I always look for paths mm-hmm. because I'm a medical guide. Uh, mm-hmm. And we want to know your path, and then we want to talk a little bit about the training that is required to become what you are. And then we're going to get into the heart of the problem and talk about psychodrama, uh, what it is, how it's used, and what it can be used for. Does that sound okay with you? Sounds great. Excellent. So we always try and figure out you know, what brought someone to become a healer. Uh, and a teacher like you are. So give us just a brief uh, line on on what your path was to get you here today. Well, 
I started doing psychodrama in 1988, and I went to it originally for my own healing. Uh, I had grown up in an alcoholic household and had been participating in some recovery meetings related to that and started talking to a couple of people about this thing called psychodrama. I'd never heard of it, and I got invited to a workshop that one of my friends was going to consistently once a month, and I went, and I was hooked from the minute I walked in the room. It just spoke to me. It, it got to got me to places that my left brain would never have allowed me to get to. Uh, and within four years, I started training in it because, as my therapist at the time said, people come to you all the time and ask for your help. You might as well get paid for it. <laughs> so uh, that's really what started me on my journey was my own personal healing, uh, wow. which I think happens for a lot of practitioners. We, we pursue a particular line of work and uh, or a, a particular line of healing and something speaks to us in that respect and we just keep going so i agree with that i see that a lot in medical school also you know the different people yeah each person goes into their different specialty and i see it a lot with uh, psychoanalysis and a number of different healing modalities where people get like that so it's it's always something that you know promotes a process and it's interesting that different things happen for different people you know, and I like the fact that this happened to you instantly. That's a great uh, story. Uh, what kind of training is needed to become what you are? This is for people that basically are thinking about becoming a psychodramatist or a teacher of psychodramatists. Yeah. So what's the training involved? Well, the, the first thing that I did, in, in addition to doing my own personal work, is in order to be a psychodramatist, you have to have a master's degree. So uh, I decided to go get a social work degree. Um, I had been working in business for quite a few years, and as I like to say, it was feeding my 401k, but it wasn't feeding my soul. (laughs) And so I went to uh, get a master's as a social worker at Fordham in New York and continued with my psychodrama training during that time. And that in New York at the time was a two-year process and... um, Interestingly enough, nowadays you have to do your internship after you finish school. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was in school, and thank goodness I was, because I don't know if I would have done it if, I, if it weren't this way, I actually did my internship while I was in graduate school. So oh, wow. when I uh, was in my final semester at Fordham, I took my licensure exam. And so when they handed me my diploma, I was actually licensed, which is amazing. It's quite wow. a different process now. Um, but it... On top of my master's degree, it required uh, the the requirement is seven hundred and eighty hours of training, uh, which sounds like a lot, and it is. But there's reasons for that because the work is so in depth. Um, and as I like to say to my students, it's all well and good to be able to open somebody up, but you also have to know how to close them down appropriately mm-hmm. and help them integrate the work that they've done. And so it took me about seven years of training. I was in an ongoing training group weekly, and then I did a lot of weekend workshops and went to conferences. Um, and so once you acquire those hours, you have to work with both a primary and a secondary trainer who guide you uh, kind of like a mentor uh, on that path and um, have to facilitate at least 80 sessions of psychodrama with 40 hours of supervision. So it's a two-to-one ratio. And then there's a very extensive written exam. It takes pretty much, I think it's about five and a half to six hours long, 
covering a multitude of, of subjects related to psychodrama, things like history and philosophy and methodology and uh, sociometry, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Um, and then you have to be observed directing a session uh, by somebody who is already a certified trainer. So it's a pretty extensive process. And um, some of my students have described it as walking a gauntlet. Um, it, is, it is quite... Uh, quite extensive and with good reason because I'm very protective of this modality and there's a lot of people out there who are calling themselves psychodramatists who are not actually certified. They're calling themselves psychodramatists and they've taken three or four courses in it or workshops and um, they really get themselves into trouble and can do harm if they don't know what they're doing. So um, I'm, uh, when I teach people, um, it, it, I'm very conscious of the importance of closure and containment and knowing that people have a strong support system. And then the other piece that, um, that I did that not everybody chooses to do is to go on to become a trainer. So there's a certified practitioner, which the, the um, credential is a CP, and then I took an additional three years to become a trainer in that modality. Um, which, again, not everybody decides to do. Some people just want to practice the modality, and some people do want to go on and teach and train. Um, so, again, three years of offering trainings, again, supervision by somebody who was already a board-certified trainer, and then a whole nother exam, a whole nother on-site. Um, it, it, was, it was quite a journey, but I learned a lot, and I continue to learn as a teacher because my students teach me all the time, which is quite a gift. So... I hope that's not too long-winded an answer. No, that was great. Uh, I think it's important because if people are thinking about this, they need to know that. Uh, and we're going to talk a little about, uh, you know, people that aren't trained well and how to pick the right trainer when, or yes. not trainer, but uh, psychodramatist uh, a little later on. But one other question that I wanted to ask you about the training, and this is not, uh, not to go toward your ego, uh, although that's psychoanalytical and nice and <laughs> not necessarily psychodrama psycho- is about as far from psychoanalysis as yeah. you're going to get. <laughs> right. I figured that. But uh, there's aside from the training, what type of character do you need to be? I know that you said you were influenced by the fact that you had a, a an interesting or challenging family upbringing uh, with alcoholic parents. But what what type of characteristics in a person do you look for as a trainer that should, uh, that should basically be doing this kind of thing? You know, there's, there's really no set uh, group of characteristics. Um, I think people come to this work for a variety of reasons. And I think they're led to work with a variety of populations. You know, there are some people who are psychodramatists who have a master's in education. There are some people who have a master's in divinity. There are um, many therapists who come to this work as well, but there are, um, there's movement therapists, dance movement therapists, there's art therapists, there's um, experiential therapists, there's all kinds of people who come to this work. But in order to um, hold that space to be a psychodramatist, I think there needs to be um, obviously deep compassion uh, as, a, as a practitioner. But one of the things that I always look for is somebody who is, has, is willing to do enough of their own work. Uh, and that is part of the process of becoming a psychodramatist, because when we train, 
we actually facilitate each other's psychodramas. Um, but there needs to be a deep willingness to look at one's own work so uh, that, I mean, I can speak from my own experience, so that when I'm facilitating somebody else's drama, and the term we use is director, the, the language is quite dramatic. The person whose piece it is is called a protagonist, and the person who's directing it is called a director. But I have to be willing to go deep enough into my own work in my own safe places so that when I'm directing somebody else, the drama is completely about them. I don't have an agenda. I don't have a place that I'm determined that we're going to get to. The whole goal is to follow them and their healing. Now, I'm meant to be kind of a shepherd and kind of, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Herding somebody in a certain direction, H-E-R-D, <laughs> herd, herding mm-hmm. them in a certain direction or helping them um, balance how deeply they're going to go in versus how much containment they have. You know, sometimes people want to get the drama done all at once and, and that's not going to serve them. Um, but I have, I continue to do my own work because if I don't, then I, you know, the, the expression that I like to use is I'm going to bleed all over the session. And that's not, <laughs> that's not going to help anybody, anybody who's a protagonist or the group. It also does require somebody who has enough of a sense of being able to multitask, if you will, because psychodrama typically, not always, I mean, it is done in individual sessions, but more often than not, it's done in a group setting. And so the capacity to be able to track a lot of different things and a lot of different people all at the same time comes in handy. You know, I have a good friend in New York who's a psychodramatist, and he always says, the hypervigilance I had in my family growing up really serves me because <laughs> I, know, I can notice a lot of things all at once. Um, the other thing is that I think is a journey as a psychodrama director, um, and I will say not everybody who learns to direct is going to want to go on and get certified, and that's okay, and we can talk more about that in terms of training as well, but um, One of the things that has become so important, and I I focus a lot of time with my students on, is that as director, I don't have all the answers, and I don't have to even know where we're going, which requires a certain level of willingness to let go Mm -hmm. and to trust the group, because a lot of times the interventions that come from other group members, I could have never come up with, I could have never imagined I could have never thought up, and it's their brilliance, and that's where my, I think, where my spiritual work comes in, because I have to trust that they're getting, you know, they're downloading something, or they're getting some information that has been given to them and not me, and I have to trust that and say, go ahead, try it, let's see what happens. So, in the language of Jacob Moreno, who created this modality, we are all part of what he called the Godhead, which is that spiritual entity and we are co-creating mm-hmm. this work that I'm not, I'm, I'm holding the space and holding the group, but I'm not in charge. And anytime I think I'm in charge, we're all in trouble. Um, <laughs> and so I teach my students that over and over again. And, and it's a big learning curve because when I first started directing psychodramas, I felt like I have to know where are we going? Where are we headed? How are mm. we going to get there? How am I going to make this happen? And now... When I direct a psychodrama, I'm curious and I'm excited. And what used to scare me in the past, like, oh, my God, where are we going? Now it's exciting. It's like, wee, where are we going? I don't know. <laughs> Let's figure it out together. Um, that, 
That's great. Uh, yeah. So that that tells me, in a sense, that people that might choose to go into this have a potential of a lifetime of joy and learning in what they're doing. Uh, it's not just going to be the same old thing all the time. It's always going to be an adventure and going uh, to uh, edges and limits and boundaries. Absolutely. Yeah. I like but that. I never expected. No, that's great. So yeah. let's. Let, you know, we're using the word psychodrama, and we've used it a lot already, and it's in the title. Give us a definition of psychodrama. It's one of those modalities that's so hard to define. It's so much easier to watch uh, because it is an action-based modality. Um, so unlike sitting in a chair or, or laying on a couch, which some people do in classical psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. um, it is a modality where it has three parts to it. There's a warm-up, there's action, and there's sharing. And one of the things I appreciate about this modality is that we never talk about people being resistant. We, we say that they're not adequately warmed up. Mm. And it's not semantic. Uh, a lot of people laugh when I say that. But everybody has a different level of warm-up and a level of willingness to move into something new and to change. And Moreno talked about the inverse relationship between anxiety and spontaneity. And when I'm highly anxious, I'm not going to be warmed up to moving into something new. My spontaneity is going to be really low. So when we help warm people up on a group level, we're getting physically getting up out of our chairs, moving into exercises. It could be something as simple as go talk to somebody in the room that you're curious to know more about. Uh, because we're trying to lower, lower the anxiety level throughout. Um, we, we then move to other exercises where uh, we might set up lines in the room, continuums of, you know, one end might represent I'm really anxious, the other end might represent I'm really excited um, mm. to be okay. here. Um, when, when Christina and I are in a positive psychology training together um, and we have something called a spire, which stands for, and you'll have to help me out, Christina, because sometimes I forget, it's spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional. Did I get that right? Excellent. <laughs> and so we're looking at Good all work, of Christina. those aspects. We're looking at all of those aspects of where we are on each of those in our lives. And rather than, for example, talking about those with somebody, we got up and put them into action. So we did continuums on a scale of zero to ten. Where am I spiritually today? And people will go physically stand on those, on those spots. So the body gets warmed up and activated. And once we lower that anxiety and build people's connection and spontaneity, then we're ready to tease out the themes that are going on in the group. And from there, the group uh, will move into, people will identify, well, you know, I'm, I'm realizing that, for example, I have this issue with, for lack of a better word, my higher power, God, spirit, creator, whatever language people use for it. And maybe I need to have a conversation with that higher power. Somebody else in the group may say, you know, I'm really struggling to get out and exercise, and I don't know what to do about that. There's this, I have these two voices going on in my head. One is yelling at me, get out and run every morning. And the other one's saying, oh, but my bed is so warm and I want to stay here. <laughs> um, so there may be three or four people in the group who identify an issue they want to work on. And then the group is going to decide by a choice, by a show of hands, uh, not show of hands, by doing what we call a choice in action, where we're going to put hands, literally, on the person whose issue 
uh, appeals to us or might help us the most to explore. And uh, I'll just, as a caveat, because I do so much work with trauma, we're always checking for comfortability with touch in that physical movement. Then we'll go into, once the group has chosen which issue we're going to work on, then the director's job is to help create that drama. So we'll make a contract with the protagonist to say, well, what do you want to get out of this piece? And so the person who's talking about the relationship with higher power might say, well, I don't understand why my higher power is, is, is putting this block in my life. And we might move into action and have the protagonist set a scene where they want to have a conversation with the higher power, choose somebody to play that role. We go through role reversal. So my higher power talks to me differently than yours does or Christina's does. Um, and we move into action with that rather than just sitting and talking about it. And we get so much action insight. So, for example, if I reverse roles and step into my higher power, some interesting things might come out of my mouth in that role. And then I get to reverse back and hear my higher power say things for me. And I might end up in an argument with my higher power. Mm -hmm. Or I might be willing to accept what he or she or it has has said to me. And and there's some kind of shift that happens inside Mm -hmm. of me as a result of that. And then once we've reached the... um, kind of the culmination of what we're trying to get out of that piece, we'd move into closure and then sharing of it. Um, And the person who played the higher power might want to share something with me that they didn't get to say or do in the role. Um, And everybody in the group gets to share to identify what has happened in that session. Somebody else might say, gosh, I never thought it was okay to have to get angry at my higher power. I've never done that. You've completely shifted my (laughs) spiritual life. I'm now going to get pissed at God. (laughs) Um, So in that three-part process, there is an opportunity for everybody to have some insight, not just the one person whose drama that we've chosen. And by doing it in action, rather than just talking about it, it allows for deeper insight. It allows for um, everybody to have a potential shift inside of them. And it allows for deeper connection within the group because we've all ended up revealing things about ourselves that we might not typically reveal just by talking about things. Um, And for your viewers, there's a lot of psychodrama uh, video out there on the Internet. I mean, people like Tian Dayton, who's a colleague of mine, who's done a lot of video about psychodrama. I have a TED Talk on my website at uh, theactioninstitute.com where we demonstrated what psychodrama looks like. because it's so hard to describe, it's actually better to be able to watch it. But I wish I'd started by saying, in a nutshell, it's a way to use action to get deeper insight into issues that I might be having historically, currently, or even moving into the future to practice new behavior, for example. And it's a way to work with a group that helps engage everybody in that process. And we all get to work while we're doing it. So that's a long-winded answer. I thought it was great, though. It gave me a whole picture of the process. Uh, I actually wanted to get up and warm up and do some things. Uh, (laughs) Is there there a a background theory of psychodrama that relates to how the therapeutic process uh, works with health and illness? Well, Moreno has his own philosophy, um, and Moreno, Jacob Moreno was actually a physician. Um, so, mind you, we didn't have the advances in those days that we do now to be able to understand how uh, the psychotherapeutic process is affecting the body. Um, 
so I, I wouldn't say there is anything specific that I know of that can speak to health and wellness along those lines. But I think what Moreno discovered um, a very long time ago is he really did look at the body because when you think about spontaneity and creativity, there's an activation in the body that goes along with that. When you look at the difference in how the body operates, even in terms of somebody's posture, when they're, uh, when they're low in their level of creativity and spontaneity, you know, the body tends to fold inward and people tend to be more in, a, in an anxious or a depressed place. Whereas people are, when people are activated in that, the body sits up and it's, it's more open and inviting. Um, so he did a lot of work in, um, with psychotic patients early on. He actually started, um, a hospital in Beacon, New York, which was, a, a an institute, a training institute, but it was a hospital for psychotics because in those days medication just, um, uh, was not as effective as it is now. I mean, in those days they just kind of put psychotics in the hospital and wrote them off. Um, and he worked with people using psychodrama and entered into their world, their psychotic world, and actually would help them heal. Um, and I think he'd be so excited by the medical advances we have now to be able to see things like how the work affects people. Um, if you look at fMRI um, readings, for example, to see the shifts in the body. So right. I'm kind of struggling to answer your question, Glenn, but I'd love to hear more about what you're trying to get at by asking it so that I can maybe answer it better. I think you answered it enough for the moment and probably over the rest of our talk, we'll come to a, some other understandings of it. Okay. Uh, is it always a group or is it sometimes no. one-on-one? It is done one-on-one, and when there are multiple roles in a psychodrama, you just have the protagonist move into each of those roles. Um, Mm -hmm. I've done many individual sessions with people. Um, One of the other important things to know about this modality is that people can play parts of themselves. We call that an intrapsychic piece. Um, They can also do what's called a transpersonal piece where they're stepping into the role of God. Um, So in the individual uh, sessions... People might identify parts of themselves, for example, like if you think about that so-called angel and devil on either shoulder, um, and we'll just have them set up chairs to represent different parts of self, and they can have an internal dialogue by going back and forth between those two voices within themselves. I've done that many times with people, and frankly, when I've had decisions of my own to make, I've often set up two chairs and just had a dialogue between those two parts of myself. Oh, nice. I was going to ask you about uh, whether or not at some point people can go home and practice things on their own, or does it always have to be with a facilitator in a, in a setting? It's a little tricky doing it on their own um, because it can bring up some pretty deep emotion. Mm-hmm. And if they go to that deep place, I'd like to um, think that they can have somebody on the other end of the phone or somebody in the room who can help with with that containment. Um, The thing about this modality that is so wonderful, but I also say as a caution, is that because we're going so deep into the unconscious, it can bring up things that people don't expect, and thus the need for deep training when you're facilitating people doing it. And I don't say that to scare people, I say it to caution them. I mean, I have enough training, I've been doing this work for 29 years now, I have enough training and experience that I know when to stop and to pick up the phone and to call a colleague of mine and say, hey, 
can you be on the other end of the phone with me when I do this? Or can you, I've done, I've done Skype sessions with colleagues. I had to make a big decision recently. And, um, I have a, a, a dear colleague who's a psychodramatist in New York, actually that Christina knows. Um, and she was on a Skype session with me as I explored multiple options. I just set up spots in the room I was trying to make a decision about which direction to go on a certain issue in my life. And mm. I tried them one at a time, but she was on the phone with me saying, okay, well, let's move on to the next one. Or is there anything else you need to say from this one? And so just having that guide and that container mm. and not having to be in charge, because when I'm in charge, I'm in, a, I'm in the left side of my brain. Right. But when I'm the protagonist, I'm in the right side of my brain and I can drop deeper into my creativity and my limbic system and my emotions. So not having to have that director's hat on while I'm doing that, it gave me great freedom. Mm. Nice. nice. You, you talk about spontaneity a lot. Yes. And I'm yes. wondering, that seems to be a key to all of this. Is, is When I'm thinking of, when I'm hearing you say spontaneity, what's happening in my mind is that it's really breaking through an inhibitory system that allows something to come out. Am I close on that? Yeah. Moreno actually, when he talked about psychodrama, he said one of the big differences between this modality and so many others is that our goal is not to lower anxiety. Our goal is to raise spontaneity. Hmm. And he defined spontaneity as the ability to come up with a new role or response to an old situation or an adequate role or response to a new one. He talked about being able to expand our role repertoire. And when I say role, and roles are very important in psychodrama, when you think about your so-called social roles, the role of wife, mother, partner, uh, daughter, sister, boss, employee, friend, colleague, uh, cousin, sister, whatever, um, some of us have stronger roles in our lives than others. So, for example, I've worked with a lot of people who um, feel a sense of great strength in the role of daughter or the role of sister, but then when they go to work and they're in the role of employee, they feel stymied, they feel shut down, they feel like they can't speak up. And so, Moreno would talk about activating their spontaneity in the role of employee, for example. Um, and so when we think about one of the things I love about the language of, of psychodrama, we already talked about resistance versus warm-up. Moreno talked about um, expanding our role repertoire um, as, um, you know, and using spontaneity, not that we're, when we try on a new role, not that we're going to do it perfectly but that we're going to do it adequately. It's about adequately stepping into that. So even if I don't get it right or I don't get it perfectly, at least I'm trying something new. And the beauty of psychodrama is that we, it's like a laboratory for trying new things. So, for example, the woman who is feeling a lack of spontaneity in her role as employee, we could set up a scene in psychodrama where she could bring in the role of her confident self, and she can practice activating that confidence with her boss or with her coworker who's given her a hard time on a project. Um, or she could choose somebody in the group to play her confident self so that she has that sense of what it feels like. Um, so, yes, spontaneity is key. And spontaneity is kind of that aha of, 
oh, wait, I want to try this new thing. And then we can step into our creativity and we can practice it. So there have been dramas that I've directed where the protagonist has, for example, had a scene with their boss where they want to speak up and they don't, they don't have the, the courage to do it. And so I might ask them, would it be okay if a couple of the group members come sit in your role and try something as though they're you and you can watch and see if it works. And so they might choose somebody else in the group and that person might come sit in their chair as them, take on their role and say to the boss, you know, I don't like it when you criticize me. It would really help me if we could start this conversation by you telling me what I did well on this project. Mm-hmm. And the protagonist gets to watch that. And the person go, the person who took the role goes and sits in their seat. And I might say to them, how's that? She's like, oh, that's really scary to say that first. But maybe I could try saying it would really help me if you could uh, tell me what I did well. Well, okay, so I'll have the protagonist go sit in their own seat again and sit in front of the boss and try that on. And then I might pull them out of the scene and say, how did that feel? Well, that felt pretty good. Okay, well, what else do you want to say? Oh, I don't know if I can say anything else. Well, let's, let's ask somebody else from the group to come and show you what they might say to the boss. So in that laboratory, sometimes we say what we really want to say to the boss that we'd never say to the boss mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> to get it out of our system, but we can have fun with it too. Sometimes therapy gets so serious and so heavy and sometimes it can be really a lot of fun to sit down and say to the boss the boss you know you're a real jerk and you really suck at being a boss (laughs) you know let's get it out of our system and be able to say that in a safe environment and then i can practice what i'm really going to say to my boss so um spontaneity uh, we're born with it we have it as children And it gets so stymied because we feel like we have to say the right thing or do the right thing. It gets instilled in us at a very young age. But, you know, I've I've heard a lot of mothers and fathers talk about how their child is so spirited and they don't want to breed that spiritedness. Christina's laughing because I've met her son. Um, They don't want to breed that spiritedness out of their child, but they also want to help them learn how to exist in our culture. Um, So Moreno really loved spontaneity and really wanted to encourage people to step into it. Um, And psychodrama allows for that. And when we do something psychodramatically, we're not going to hurt anybody. You know, the boss isn't in the room or if there's something you've always wanted to say to your mother or your father or your husband or your wife or your partner, you can say it in the room and you're not going to hurt them and you can get it out of your system. Right. So that you can go back to a calmer place and practice what you're really going to say and then go do it in real life. So, again, a long-winded answer. I just get so excited about this stuff. This is so exciting. (laughs) That is. I I have to tell you, uh, Gene, as you're speaking, um, it, it brings up so many fond memories I have as I was learning to be an actor. And, uh, you know, going to acting classes, etc. And we had that one coach, whether he knew it or not, but he broke uh, so many of our boundaries that our societal cultural boundaries. Um, And it wasn't about judgment It was about being able to break through so that we could tap in to play these characters that was ahead of us. 
Yes. And so as you're speaking, my, my inside is just laughing and having a wild time going, oh, how fun, how fun, because it is fun. Th- there was a time where I was raised where you don't show this, you don't show that, you have a certain etiquette, and this is the way you are, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and to be able to break all those boundaries was such a relief and and just come and play in life. Right. And, and take on roles that you would never expect yourself to be able to play. Like, mm-hmm. I love playing a total jerk in psychodrama <laughs> because I get to play it to the hilt. I get, you know, I'm, I'm refraining from using uh, an expletive, but I get to play just the worst person on the planet. And it actually helps the protagonist because it places on them what we call a role demand where it's like poking at somebody and they have to respond. And if I play the role to the hilt, it gives them the opportunity to activate their spontaneity and tell me off in that role. We, we say it's being in service of the protagonist because it gives them the opportunity to release the energy that they've been holding on to. And actors get to do that all the time. I mean, you get to step into the role of somebody you'd never get to play. And Moreno loved the theater. He went to the theater mm. all the time. And what really activated his, you know, in the, in the forming years of this modality, two of the things that really activated him to move into creating this was, one, when he went to the theater, he had the aha of saying, gosh, I'm having such a powerful catharsis watching this theater production. What would it be like if we told our own stories? Mm-hmm. And that was really part of the genesis of this modality. But the other thing is he used to watch children playing in the park in Vienna. And he would watch their spontaneity and their creativity and the stories they were making up and the roles they would take on completely spontaneously. Well, I'm the king. No, you're not. I'm the queen. You know, children just do this naturally. And so what I'm hearing is that your acting teacher found a way or your coach Mm -hmm. found a way to reactivate that childlike energy inside of you and give you permission to jump into a role that you don't normally get to play in life. And I think, frankly, Christina, that's why some people go into acting. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. But I will say as an aside, and I've, I've worked with actors over the years, and I've also worked with some acting teachers and coaches, some acting teachers open people wide up and they don't know how to close them down and they right. do great damage. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and so as if you're, if you're looking to train in acting, make sure you work with a coach or a teacher who knows how to balance those two, who can help you step into the role, but who also knows how to help you get out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I've worked with some actors who ended up really struggling because they were playing a particularly dark role. I mean, mm-hmm. I, look, I always think of Heath Ledger. Oh, yes. He didn't get out of the role of the Joker. And I think, frankly, that's part of what led to his demise, mm-hmm. is that it was too dark a role and he didn't know what to do to get out. Yeah. So um, that's thus the importance of training, not only as an acting teacher or a coach, and the necessity for doing your own work, but also the training if you're going to be an experiential therapist or a psychodrama therapist or psychodrama facilitator. Mm-hmm. Well, I can, like the, I can see yeah. uh, Jean working on a set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we haven't talked about sociometry before, but uh, which I uh, yet, but which I can comment on in a moment. But I've always thought. Um, I would be a really good um, casting director because sociometry is the science and the art of being able to facilitate exercises and be able to to really take in the the whole gestalt, if you will, 
of an organization or a group and to be able to see how people are connecting or not connecting to help facilitate them getting along better, to help facilitate sussing out those transferences that are in the room that nobody wants to talk about. And so often when we direct a psychodrama, you know, we choose people to play different roles. And as a sociometrist, I can often tell you when the protagonist says, oh, well, I want to work on this today. I can often tell you, oh, well, she's going to choose this person to play their mother and that person to play their father, (laughs) this person to play her husband, because I know the connections that are going on in the group. And I know who, you know, often people are really good at playing heavy roles and they can hold that role but still have a level of safety. And so I know that, oh, that's the person who's going to get chosen to play this role because they can play it to the hilt, they're safe enough, and at the end of the drama, they can come back to being themselves and um, the protagonist will get what they need out of that. So I've often thought, yeah, I would be, I would be a very good casting director <laughs> as a result of that. I can, I can really feel the energy and whether people are going to connect or not, you know, the so-called chemistry they talk about on the set. Um, or yeah. the non-chemistry that you want. Or the non-chemistry. <laughs> yeah, I think, oh my God, if they just had a sociometrist in the casting room, they would have known these two people are never going to work well together. <laughs> Psychodrama uh, is good for many different things. And on your website, which I recommend everyone go to, you had mentioned that before. You want to mention the name of it again? Theactioninstitute.com. Right. It talks about how it's good for uh, addictions, trauma recovery, mental issues, and somatic psychotherapy. Clearly, all of these are very important, uh, but I would like to focus a little bit on somatic psychotherapy. And the reason I think that's important, we do a lot of work in addiction and trauma recovery, things like that. But I've seen some very important examples of people throughout my career, uh, both family, friends, and clients, and patients, that have at one point started out by going to the doctor saying, I have a stomach ache, and they do tests on them and find out there's nothing. So they eventually say, oh, it's all in your head. They used to call it, uh, you know, psychosomatic, but that meant you're crazy in a way, and just here's some Valium or here's something to relax. And it would continue to go on. There would be tests being done that wouldn't show biomarkers, so it kept being one thing until it finally became an actual physical problem where they suddenly had irritable bowel syndrome or regional enteritis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and then they go through uh, all sorts of steroid enemas and eventually have surgery removing part of their colon, where where it seems to me that something like this, when a doctor sees someone that that looks like it's psychosomatic, where there's some level of mental process and physical process involved in it, that instead of just saying, here's Valium, they might consider saying, "Take a, go to a psychodramatist and prevent something from actually becoming the ulcerative colitis. What's your thoughts yeah. on that? I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm I'm also trained as a psychodramatic body worker, and that modality combines psychodrama with somatic release work, and it's based in Chinese medicine. It was created by uh, one of my mentors, a woman named Susan Aaron, uh, who's up in Toronto. Um, and the 
the beauty of looking at it from an energetic standpoint is, and the, the Chinese medicine, and Christina can vouch for this, uh, Chinese medicine's been around for, what, over 5,000 years at this point. Um, and when I talk about Chinese medicine, I'm talking about things like acupuncture and shiatsu. Uh, and we know that through Chinese medicine, we know that energy gets trapped in the body. And when we're talking about it from a trauma perspective, that energy, we, you know, we are energetic beings. And I've, I've said this over and over, ago, over again, you can't heal trauma by talking because it happens on a physical level. It happens on a somatic level. And when that energy gets trapped in the body, whether you're using psychodrama, psychodramatic body work, somatic experiencing, which I'm also training in, EMDR, the energy's got to move. And if the energy doesn't move, I would agree with you that it, it often will then pool in a particular area of the body that's trying to call attention to an emotional or spiritual issue that needs to be uh, attended to. And many times I've worked with people psychodramatically or using psychodramatic body work, or even now I'm starting to use somatic experiencing as well, to really just pay attention to what that energy is trying to tell us. Um, and to track that and to follow it, to allow it to discharge safely. So uh, it's almost like putting in, you know, I always think of after surgery, there's a, uh, a drainage Right. I mean, you can you can speak to that mm-hmm. much more than I can, certainly as a physician. But there's there's fluid that needs to drain out of the body. I think of this kind of work as energetic drainage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't drain it and in, uh, properly, if the drainage doesn't happen properly, you get an infection. And this is like an emotional or a, a spiritual infection. Um, and so, for example, uh, I'm a firm believer that when and when a trauma is perpetrated against someone it's like a transfer of energy from the perpetrator to the victim and the victim needs some way to discharge that energy and if it doesn't get discharged it gets stuck and that stuckness as you said can can eventually lead to a physical illness and i want to be really careful to say that people don't cause their own physical illnesses that way i think sometimes people hear hear what we're talking about and they think well does that mean i gave myself cancer or does that mean i gave myself crohn's disease that's not what i'm saying no something happened in your history that led to this energy eventually leading to a disease manifesting and I would agree with you wholeheartedly. It, it makes me crazy sometimes that that in Western, you know, Western medicine, people are told it's all in your head. Well, most Western physicians, and I have tremendous respect for Western medicine, but most Western physicians aren't trained in Eastern medicine philosophies. They're not trained in the spiritual aspects of medicine. They're not trained in the emotional aspects of medicine, and they don't know often to say hey, why don't you go see this somatic experiencing practitioner or why don't you go work with this person who does psychodrama or this person who does somatic trauma release work or this person who does EMDR or this massage therapist who can, or, or you know, there's a whole host of other energetic work mm-hmm. out there. I'm a Reiki master as well. You know, go see this person who can help you tend to this energy that has gotten stuck in your body that clearly needs to move out and see if the physical symptoms then dissipate as a result of that work. I think Eastern and Western can work collaboratively so beautifully if both are open to it. 
you talk about Chinese medicine, and, and in uh, psychodrama, you talk about meridians. Are you using the same meridians that traditional uh, Chinese medicine, Asian medicine talks Absolutely. about? Absolutely, and I, I want to be... Um I just want to educate you and your listeners that psychodrama and psychodramatic bodywork are two different modalities. Susan Aaron had been trained in psychodrama up in, in Toronto. She's a, um, a Canadian director is the certification that they use in Canada, a director of psychodrama. And she's also a massage therapist. And she started to see how while psychodrama can be very effective in helping people shift, but often the deeper somatic piece of that was not being tended to. And again, every practitioner is different. Some people direct very classically in psychodrama, and they're not um, using a lot of somatic work. They're not using a lot of touch. Because I was trained by Susan, in addition to some terrific psychodrama training that I got from uh, all the trainers I worked with over the years who taught me classically, um, I do combine the, uh, the somatic piece and it is, it is the same kind of um, modality that Chinese medicine practitioners would be using. Yes, classical Chinese medicine, working with meridians, the gallbladder meridian, the, the uh, small intestine meridian, the triple warmer, triple burner, triple heater meridian, those same kinds of meridians, yeah. Mm-hmm. Heart <clears throat> constrictor, all of those. When you, when you do this, it, it always seems like the person comes to you with a problem and that's or the group comes with various problems one of the things we look at on magical medical tour and i look at as a medical guide is prevention and preparation so i'm i'm wondering if there's some form of psychodrama that could be used by families that don't uh, necessarily have a problem, but learn how to, when they're sitting at the dinner table or afterwards, have some kind of role-playing that they could teach their kids uh, and families how to react to each other in a different way to prevent uh, problems when traumas come. And And part of that, for me, really has to do with the concept of you mentioned earlier that children really have intuition, and it's the adults that we have to get back to their intuition that they've blocked it. And so my question is, could there be some form of this, just like we have regular education, but then we had kindergarten and nursery school and preschool before they actually got to the education? Is there something that parents and families could actually do to prevent these problems rather than waiting for it to happen and then 20 years later you decide to become a psychodramatist? Well, um, I think the best thing parents can do is do their own work (laughs) um, so that they're clearing whatever they need to clear so that they can be in service of their children, for lack of a better word. You know, Zerka Moreno, who actually passed away last year, who... That's the uh, wife of? That is the wife of Jacob Moreno. She was just a force of nature, and she wrote a tremendous amount. She trained people all over the world. Um, and um, literally even in her nursing home for the past, uh, I don't know, she was probably in a nursing home, actually probably since about 2002, or 2000, sorry. Um, But she she wrote a book and probably a series of articles, and my fellow trainers will probably get on me for not knowing the exact references on this, Um, but she wrote a lot about what she called the psychodramatic family, 
And their son, Jonathan, was the subject of that. Um, And Jonathan actually published a book a couple of years ago called Impromptu Man, which is a wonderful biography of his father. Mm. Uh, But Zerka wrote extensively about how she used psychodrama with her son, Jonathan, um, to reverse roles and, for example, take on the role of the dog in the house when when Jonathan thought that something was happening with the dog and the dog might want to say something. Zerka would have him reverse roles and speak as the dog. Um, she would have him reverse roles and become the mommy, and she would become the child. And so to, to help children um, to step into those other roles and to be spontaneous um, and to, to hold on to that spontaneity, um, to give them permission to continue to do that without squelching it, but helping them then balance how where it's kind of like my inside voice versus my outside voice with children. Mm-hmm. Um, there are mm-hmm. games that we can play at home or there are things that we can do at home that we might not necessarily blink, bring into the classroom or bring out into the world. Um, years ago, I, I worked with a, uh, an extraordinary woman in my private practice when I was in New York City, and um, I taught my groups about doing fear releases, which are great things to do, and that that is something, well, again, depending upon somebody's level of trauma history, um, it can be a great thing to do to uh, release fear out of the body where um, she, the, my, my former client used to be in the car with her children and they'd be in the back seat in their car seats. And sometimes when she'd get into a sense of overwhelm, she'd be sitting at a light in the car and she would turn the mirror so the children couldn't see her face, but she needed to discharge some of her own fear And she would do it as a game. And the kids thought it was hysterical and they loved doing it. So they'd be sitting at the stoplight and she would say, okay, on the count of three, and she'd count to one, two, three. And and she would, all three of them would scream a high-pitched scream like they were coming down a roller coaster. (laughs) And the body doesn't know the difference between discharging that energy on a roller coaster and discharging that energy because I'm terrified. And so she would get the fear out of her body or that sense of overwhelm out of her body. And the children would think it was hysterical and they could scream and not have to worry about their inside voice. Um, And it would be a great game that they got to play with mommy. And then she'd say, okay, let's do it again. And depending upon how long the light was, they'd scream again. And then, okay, we're done screaming. And, you know, she'd put the car back in the park and they'd drive (laughs) off and the light would change. Um, Beautiful. So to find those ways to help children, again, it's about moving that pooled energy out of their body. I've never understood why we take seven-year-old and six-year-old children and tell them they have to sit in a desk for seven hours. It's insane. Right. Get them up and moving. And, you know, there's colleagues of mine who use psychodrama extensively in classroom settings because children need to move. They need to express that energy. And if we can get them up and moving in classrooms and allow them to step into that spontaneity instead of memorizing things by road and knowing the answer to things, Mm -hmm. it continues to allow them to activate their spontaneity. A lot of parents I've worked with over the years, you know, another thing I could say that would help families and help parents is actually play with your children. Do you know, do plays, work with puppets, play with puppets, um, mm. give children the opportunity to step into other roles. Let them reverse roles with you. If, you. if you have to, if your children have to make a decision about what we're doing today for fun, have them reverse roles and become the mommy. Well, today we're going to do this. Okay, great. Let's do that. 
And, you know, maybe as the child, they say, well, mommy, I don't want to do that. And they get to practice being the mommy. And they, they get to develop compassion for mom in terms of what it's like for mommy to have to deal with them when they get a little out of control, right? <laughs> Got they it. get to step into the role of the other. And so to make it playful and fun, um, it gives children more of a sense of compassion. And Moreno believed that the way we're going to solve all of our problems in the world is to be able to reverse roles with each other. If I can understand the world from your perspective, we don't need to fight. I may agree to disagree with you, but I don't have to beat you up for it or blow you up for it. I mean, when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, he, Moreno offered to, to facilitate a dialogue between Khrushchev and Kennedy. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. Nice. So. In, the, in, the, in the scientific world that I live in, partially, we look for research, we look for successes and failure rates. How do we know uh, that this actually works? Uh, is there good research on this? And also the next part is, what's the future of psychodrama? Well, I will admit that we are not the best researchers because we're all so right-brained. <laughs> we went into mm-hmm. this line of work because we didn't want to research. Um, I will say that some of my colleagues have done some really wonderful research but most of it is um, anecdotal research, and most mm-hmm. of it, the thing about this work, like much of the uh, therapeutic work out there, is that it's self-reported, which doesn't hold up to the same kind of scientific standards that things like fMRIs can do or um, scientific, you know, true scientific research around levels of blood pressure and um, uh, people's immune levels or uh, blood work, that kind of thing. And, you know, boy, do I wish I had the time and the energy to write all those grants to be doing that kind of work. Um, I know anecdotally that people shift. I know what has shifted in my own body and in my own being over the years in terms of using this work. Um, Some of my colleagues are making great strides uh, to move more into doing research because it is needed. I think one of the reasons that this modality is not as well recognized as others is because we haven't done the research that we need to. Um, and so, you know, mea culpa on that. Um, but I also think that there are some modalities out there that have done tremendous research, but frankly, I don't see the shifts in people on a, on a full, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Again, I'll use the word gestalt. And just as an aside, Fritz Perl studied with Moreno for years and then went off and created gestalt, which is a wonderful modality as well. Um, But that whole being, for lack of a better term, that whole being experience of shifting. You know, sometimes people's actions have changed, but their thoughts really haven't. Or sometimes their thoughts have changed, but their actions haven't. Um, and what I love about psychodrama is that because we're coming at it from a whole perspective, uh, it, it really, the shifts are sometimes very subtle, but they're very long-term because we're practicing those new behaviors. And so in some of that self-reporting, I think we can see that people will report, you know, I do feel differently after this weekend workshop, or I do feel differently after this six months of therapy or after this, um, year of practicing this new modality. Um, and like I said, you know, if there's anybody out there who wants to help me write all those grants to, 
to do right. research, I would I would sign on with that in a heartbeat. I, I I do not profess to be a scientist. I'm fascinated by science. I have great appreciation for research, and I am not your gal to do that kind of stuff. If You've people talk- are interested in things like that, some of my colleagues, like Kate Hudgens, has done a tremendous amount of research. Rory Reamer at the University of Kentucky has done some. Tom Treadwell. Uh, who's based in Pennsylvania, has done quite a bit of it. And so um, if you and my colleague Erica Michaels-Hollander has done, uh, she's really leading the charge to to have us be doing more research out there. So my hat's off to them. The, the uh, question that I want to ask now is, thank you for that answer. That was good. Uh, how does one decide that this is the right modality for them and that how do they find the right teacher we only have a few more minutes, and I want to get a health tip from you. Are you talking about teaching or going for your own no, course? No, for therapy. Okay. Well, there is a website, psychodramacertification.org, O-R-G, where people can go and search for a psychodramatist in their, their area. But what I would suggest that people do, and I do this with anybody who's looking for a therapist, is go try a couple of folks. Go shop around. Because the relationship is the most important part in any therapeutic process. Um, But I ask people, what has been your psychodrama training? I don't want to hear that somebody has read about it in a book or has observed other people doing it. I want to know, who did you train with? How much training did you get? How much of your own work related to this have you done? I'm not asking a therapist to reveal their deepest, darkest secrets. But I want to know, have you been a recipient of this modality? And how long have you been training in it? And who have you trained with? And was that trainer actually a trainer of psychodrama? Not somebody else who's practicing it who's had a little bit of training. Um, And again, we go back to intuition. Trust your gut. If something doesn't feel safe, then don't do it. Um, There's a lot of people out there, you know, I want to look for somebody's credentials. Are they certified? You know, there's, there's another certification, a certified experiential therapist which you don't need a master's degree to get. It's the American Society of Experiential Therapy. And some of the people who are certified in the certification is CET, Certified Experiential Therapist. Some of those people have done extensive training. They don't ever want to become a psychodramatist. Maybe they don't want to get a master's degree. Maybe they're an addictions counselor. But they're really wonderful practitioners. But again, I want to know how much training have they done and where and with whom. It's the same kind of thing that if I come into a physician's office, I want to know. Where did he or she go to med school? Are they board certified? Uh, where did they do their residency? How long have they been in practice? What's been their experience? What's their specialty? It's all the same questions that I'm going to ask a physician. Excellent. Christina, any, yeah, thank you. Are, any thoughts, Christina, before we get a great health tip from Jean? <laughs> so many thoughts. You know that. Glenn. I know that. <laughs> It's like, ooh. <laughs> no, I, I do believe this has been a, a really fabulous show, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this health tip. Yes, Jean, how about sharing a health tip with us? Although you've given us so many already. I know. <laughs> a health tip. I would say the health tip I want to offer today is we're walking through a very challenging time in this country right now regardless of what your political beliefs are, regardless of um, what your spiritual practice is, regardless of whether you're in therapy or not in therapy. I think if, if we talk about it from an energetic standpoint, there is so much energy that's flying all over the place. 
these days. And the best health tip I can give is, and I practice this every day, is to get as centered as possible in whatever way you can, whether that's through prayer, whether that's through meditation. For me, I'm blessed to live very close to the Pacific Ocean. I go to the beach every day. I sit still. I let those negative ions wash over me. Um, I listen to the sound of the ocean. I get quiet. I go inside. Um, and it, I feel the shift in my, in my body. Um, for some people, it's going out. One of my dearest friends, she goes out for a run, and that's her spiritual practice, and it grounds her and centers her. Anything that people can do to come back to center, to come back to themselves before they go to work, before they interact with their children, before they get online and answer emails and come off in a way that they didn't plan on coming off in the email. Um, and I have really limited the amount of screen time I've had and things like news sites. I mean, I'm staying current, but I know that the best way I can be of service to other people, you know, I always think of when I get on an airplane, they tell me, put your mask on first. And I just want to remind people of that, to do that in whatever way that works best for you, in whatever practice works for you. If you don't have a practice, let yourself do some research and go out and try a couple of things and see what speaks to your body, to your heart, and to your mind. That's the best tip I can give today. Mm. And it's a great Beautiful. one. I'm grateful to our very special guest, Jean Campbell, who has shared her wisdom, experience, and expertise with us. I'd like to also thank my teachers and all of my healers in keeping me on my journey, thanking Yoga Hub and Christina and Segovia and all those that are working with us and all of our audience. Look forward to getting together on Magical Medical Tour uh, next time when we'll explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. Thank you so much, Gene, for being with us today. And until next meeting, I wish you all optimal health. Yes, thank you so much, Gene Campbell. It's uh, been truly an honor to have you share your expertise with our global community. And of course, to you, Glenn, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for being my wonderful co-host. And we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where we do encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. And that could be a wonderful practice as uh, part of Gene's tip. Or mm-hmm. you could follow him on tw- on Twitter. Oh, sorry, not Twitter, Facebook, at The Medical Guide. You can connect with Jean Campbell through her website, theactioninstitute.com, theactioninstitute.com. We hope that this moment on YHTV has supported you or a loved one in some way. We invite you to take a moment to like us or subscribe to our channel. We look forward to your feedback, comments, and suggestions anytime. Please give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.